Hello. Hi, everyone. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Environmental Podcast. Yeah, this is our podcast where we choose an aspect of sustainability and we deep dive into it every month. Mm-hmm. And over the past, I guess, month, month and a half, we've really been diving into, we, we decided to go a little bit longer on this one because we're talking about food and agriculture, how agriculture and culture intersect. We also yeah. talked about food insecurity, food deserts, and um, food waste, and like food talked- tech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and this is an interesting like switch a little bit because this week we read a book called black food matters i never have the author's names on on me ashante m reese and hannah garth they it's but it's actually a compilation of a lot of different articles uh from sociologists and people in social science world um and it's incredible yeah yeah it was really cool so and it's a it's a hefty topic so we decided to split it up into two parts so we'll be talking about this topic over the course of this week and our next episode coming out next week yep and i will go first um, with the first half of the book, we'll split it up. I like these, the one we split, when we get to like share what we learn. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so I went, I read the, the first half of the book and I, it is a, you said it right. This is a heavy topic. There is a ton to learn about and a ton to think about um and I don't really know where to start I wrote down a lot of thoughts (laughs) but I think I'll start with like maybe the names of the chapters and their um authors because they all have different authors and it's different topics so um yeah uh chapter it's chapters or articles but in the food justice world, but not of, but not of it. Everyday Black Food Entrepreneurship by Ashante Emrys. Uh, the second one is the intersection of politics and food security in a South Carolina town by Jillian Richards Greaves. The third is nurturing the revolution, the Black Panther Party, and the early seeds of food justice movement by Annalena Hope. Asberg. Hope I said that right. Um, the fourth is Blackness and Justice in the Los Angeles Food Justice Movement by Hannah Garth. And I also um, listened to Good Food in a Racist System, Competing Moral Economies in Detroit by Andrew Newman and Yusin Young. And did you also read that one? Um, I don't think so. It's yeah, they're always based on tracks. So like it's track six out of 12, I think. 
Mine started at soul food gentrification. Yeah. So that's the next one. Yeah. So it was was quite different. And that's why, that's really why we split this up because there were so many like subsections of this book that all of them really are fascinating topics that could in and of itself have a a solo podcast all about them. (laughs) Like each chapter could have really been its own podcast. I mean, its own Mm -hmm. article. These are long articles and they're so intentional and so well thought out. I, I think I would highly recommend this book, um, to anybody that wants to do the work. Um, because this does touch on a lot of, it's, it's not a conceptual racism book. Like it's not like it, it is, here's how systematic racism has affected the Black community over the past 50 years, 50 plus years. And here are potential solutions for it. Whereas a lot of times you read a lot about like systemic racism and classism and sexism. And I think you read a lot about it. A lot of it feels conceptual because isms are emotional reactions that people have to other the other. But this is such an incredible documentation of like, here's the shit that happens. Like, and it's- Yeah, it's like a history book in a way. In in a way, yeah. Yeah, It is the correct history (laughs) that like, they don't want you to know. That's, yeah. Yeah, this is what's left out of the history books. Yeah. Super what's left out. Um. So yeah, we kind of decided that rather than like going topic to topic, we would split it up and sort of give thoughts and interest and like how it all wraps together, which I think was a good choice because there's so much to consider and it is so deep. And I kept coming back to this idea about like removing this white centric focal point or this plan and the definitions of what of what is healthy like this is healthy and this is what they need would happen that's kind of this this conversation where on a consistent basis white folks or like more affluent folks are like this is what they need in the poor black communities um and this dialogue feels really separatist and it's born out of really from the same supremacy that caused the food insecurity to begin with and continues to cause it today. Mm -hmm. And I really loved that this book focused, like kind of removed that conversation entirely, like pointed to it directly. And then was also like, yeah, like this doesn't help. Here are some things that do help. Okay. Interesting. Um, so, and I, and like, there are real issues to food access and, but it doesn't, so I, I'm not saying that, but I, I am saying that it doesn't help to just like give solutions without understanding the complexity of the issue. And which is <laughs> just wrapped up in like everything, but, uh, I, there, the chapter about um, the Black Panthers 
which I think is, which was the third article um, in the book, is really inspiring because in history, they see the Black Panthers as super violent. And I find that ironic in today's climate because they were originally thought that way because they marched with weapons to stand up for the Second Amendment right. Like, I'm not going to go into the cultural implications there. I think we can just set that down. But they, they, they're an activist group for sure, but actually they are a, a program and a group that empowers Black voices. And they built these really incredible survival programs, which they call them. And the one they talk about a lot in this is the breakfast program, which federal breakfast programs are still based on today, including the school, including the school that I went to and had free breakfast programs. I had no idea, but it's when they were explaining it, I was like, I went to a school like that, that had this exact same program. Um, and something that she said in this article is hungry kids can't pay attention in school, which you talked about two weeks ago. Then, but they made it bigger. Hungry communities can't organize. Yeah. The Black Panther Party actively were, they were reframing things like food, healthcare, living wages, like access to clean water <laughs> as rights. And that scares the government because they created a politically charged, educated Black population, which is terrifying to, them, for our government. to those like, in power yeah those in power mm-hmm. um so like hungry poor communities aren't accidental and group and the groups of people that talk about or want to solve root issues like the lack of healthy food access actually solve the root issue rather than just throwing food at the problem or healthcare, or not making a living wage, or clean water, or systemic racism, or intergenerational poverty, they're treated like they're violent, and they get crazy freaking propaganda talked about them. Like, look at BLM right now. It's the same method used to to make them seem so violent, to, yeah, to vilify that group in any way, shape, or form, yeah. Yep. And that's what happened with the Black Panther Party. And it's a damn shame because they did really, really good work to empower this community and and offer food sovereignty, which is like totally different than like just giving access to food. And like food. Hmm. And there's a lot about food sovereignty in the, in this book because I mean, that's what it's about. It's not like, it's not about like solving the food access issue. There's even a part in the last book. Actually, the last chapter is that I read is very, very interesting because it talks to people in Detroit about their access to food and how they feel about it. And they don't ever really talk about how far they have to go. It's just like part of their life. Like the access part 
isn't really isn't really a problem for them. They're just sort of like politically charged. Um, they're about like, oh yeah, this grocery store, if I go, I go you know, uh, like into the suburbs, if I want to get good meat and this grocery store has cheap canned food, but you got to watch the label. Like it's just as political of a conversation as it is if you're like, no matter where you live, which grocery store has the best food, has the safest food, rather than being like, I, I'm, I just can't get to the grocery store. Like that's not, that, that didn't come up in their conversation with the people that they interviewed in Detroit, which I think is really interesting because as a, as a sociologist or as an interdisciplinary, like, scholar somebody studying this people are like concerned about access and how to get to the grocery store and how people are going to you know but that's not part of the culture and it never has been so it's one of those i think that if a grocery store was placed somewhere and it was thriving and then it was removed it would be a lot different of a story but it's never been there so this group of this these poor communities like they just it's just part of their life that they have to go over there to get to the grocery store if if that makes any sense hmm interesting i mean perhaps that we that i did look at that chapter as well because i I have some notes about detroit too unless my mine also started with detroit but more than one i I thought that they did mention that um like one in five urban residents didn't have cars. But it's, yeah, but it's still like part of their culture, just part of their life that they have to travel to if they want to get. Okay. It's become normalized that, yeah, they have to do it. Yeah. It's not, they don't think, yeah. I mean, sure. Just, I just find that interesting. Yeah. I find interesting. it like we're concerned about like getting a grocery store over there, you know, like from a from a place of like interdisciplinary study and from research point of view. It's like, how do we get food into this neighborhood and how do we make sure that it's healthy food and questions like that. But when you actually talk to somebody on the ground, that isn't what comes up for them. They can mm-hmm. just, they'll just say, that's where the good meat is. That's, you know, you have to go a ways, but that's right. where it's at, you know, it costs a little more. Like they, it's a normalized thing, mm-hmm. which, yeah, I find that. That really- makes sense. I mean, they have to, they, it doesn't make a difference really if you're, if you have to go a mile and a half or if you have to go two or three miles down the right. road like they'll still, I mean, that's just the way it's been. Right. That's the way it's always been. And when you, when you, when that's the way it's always been in a culture that is like, we make ways where there is no ways. Yeah. You know, that statement was said a lot throughout this. Then it seems less of an emergency to need to put a grocery store there. You know, they, this is an adaptive culture. I find it 
and that's where this the where I come back to the idea of like this white centric we have to solve this problem but like there are folks that live in a different culture that are you know it's still it's a separatist idea they have ways they you know uh, they've been feeding themselves for this long not saying that there isn't a problem because there is a food access problem absolutely but this it isn't something to pity no it's a and I, I love the way that the and and oftentimes I think that from a place of privilege it does come off as we have to solve this problem and it does come off as like oh poor pity but hmm. I don't I think that reframing that as just you know empowering people feeding people in the way that the Black Panthers like really spoke on it is something that is an important shift to make like into this sovereignty idea and into this like empowering a group uh educating and creating a politically charged population that cares um and food justice is one way of doing that because yeah hungry people can organize as they as they said hungry people can't organize hungry people can't organize yeah fed people can organize that's what i mean and interesting i mean to i'm like it's an interesting thought that i mean of course yes there is always this kind of thing this like you know white savior complex um but to some extent as you mentioned like this the food inequality isn't an accident so working to try to solve that like that's the issue that I think that white voices can and should be trying to like address rather than like yeah saying like why do you shop at the dollar store you're being unhealthy let's you know, right. think of healthy options. Like that's not the freaking solution. Like that's, that's not. not how we should be having these conversations. But you know, like that's an interest. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction. It's just how historic power and food has always been, um, and and food as a means of control. Yeah, and even so far as like this is healthy food and this is not healthy food, like. I mean, we can use data to, to say that, but there's a part that talks about culture and tradition. And um, I think it's, I wrote it down. It's in article four that, um, what is that called? Cause that's a really, really good one. Blackness and justice in the Los Angeles food justice system, food justice movement, sorry. That's a, that is more of a like commentary based article. The other ones are 
it felt more personal. Um, she told a personal story during the article about how she she decided to like be a part of an organization and they asked her a question about like what foods they eat, what her favorite food is. And she was a mentor and she said her favorite food was mac and cheese. And that based on everybody else's answers, there's like a big Latinx community and, and a white community and black community. Like everybody was represented everybody in the Los Angeles like space um, and indigenous and also Indian community, like everybody said a traditional food. And then she said mac and cheese. And afterwards, another organizer was like, don't say that again. Uh, because we want to teach people how to eat healthy food. And it removed this cultural identification that and then now, so that we just think of black food as unhealthy food. Mm -hmm. And so again, we're at this place of like, what you're doing is wrong. And here's the actual solution because that's not healthy. But like, it just actually adds to this, like, removed the culture. You're just black like you're just we don't have you don't get to have a culture that is your own anymore conversation and and how important culture and food are together and how when you remove that something like mac and cheese it seemed as unhealthy and shameful but like they could talk about tamales and like mm. all of these other culturally maybe not as healthy foods but like there's they're very culturally related it just seemed so, and I never really thought about it. Um, how, yeah, like mac and cheese, like what is that a cultural food? Is it an American food? Like that's just one example that she gave, but I mean, it is. Mm -hmm. But but a lot of those, those foods, that are ingrained in African-American culture come from the days of slavery where, totally. yeah, where the, like any, you know, they were using anything that they could find in order to feed their community around them. Yep. And so like big one pot meals were a thing. Yeah. And, and they're still, and they're she, still a huge part of, of black culture and black yeah. food culture. Yeah, barbecue, yeah, a lot of, yeah, that'll and be that something I so important. Yeah, I'm really excited to listen to you talk about the barbecue article because that one looked really cool. But it's like, yeah, we think of mm -hmm. soul food as the traditional black food, but that only makes sense if you view it through like the idea of white colonial oppressive ideas in an urban environment, actually, because also, if you think about it in terms of like the times of slavery, it was entirely agricultural. Like they, Black folks had been working on and with community and with gardens and feeding whole huge groups of people and feeding this country since the beginning of this country. And it, a lot of that comes from Africa and a lot of like the way even we preserve now is still in rooted in an African culture. And they've always found ways to feed themselves and to feed their communities, even when they, other people were, or white folks were 
using food as a punishment or mm-hmm. as like a privilege or like with power mm-hmm. they still that's why that's the term finding ways where there are no ways or where there is no ways and which i think is so incredible and this book like just it takes you there you know it takes you to that feeling and oh and it it feels it offers a sense of pride as to let of like from the authors of like holy shit we did it kind of a feeling you know there's like these communities they they still prosper and they still and they're and they're learning and gaining a voice and through all of this hardship which is shown so clearly in food culture it like really makes you so emotional it's so it's such a beautiful thing to try to understand and to try to empathize with and when I think about it so then I so then I like took a step back and spent it like and thought about it in terms of sustainability because I also want to always think about from our lens of like sustainability and environmentalism a community that makes ways where there are no ways is a community that we should be spending time learning from because we're moving in that direction when we have a the idea and the power of food sovereignty as a given thing is such a privilege that we have that we never even think about because as white folks we just have had it we just have it it's just we can just assume that we have the power to make eating decisions and from a community that hasn't always had that power and that has had to fight to gain it and work really hard to like have a voice in their food system we should be looking at that as a learning example because we're rapidly approaching a situation where we are not going to be food sovereign if we if we don't change our ways and find new ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just love it. I love this book. And yeah, that's pretty much the first half just wow. like my my your takeaways <laughs> yeah takeaways from yeah this part huh yeah it is that's so I mean you mentioned that this that in, in one part of this book that they sort of mentioned other solutions um that aren't like a food bank or something to that extent like I don't I in my section they actively said like they're really we don't have any solutions for some of these issues this is just a continuous thing that continues to happen and and they really just were trying to kind of raise awareness um 
Yeah. So what I find, what I found really interesting and by solutions, I meant kind of a different way of looking at it. Um, one of my, in article one, she talks about, uh, entrepreneurship in food culture. And I think that like entrepreneurship in food culture comparative compared to like the black Panther programs, like in, in one, they're both feeding people and the entrepreneurship, it's like, you have a food truck, you know, she talks a lot about like food trucks and they're mobile. They make, they make food available to whole communities. They can, they can be where the community will be and they make a, they can be cheaper because yeah, they don't cost as much, although it's really expensive to have a food truck politically because they're a bunch of like, um, politics around food trucks mm-hmm. and they negatively impact impact black entrepreneurs more which is and that's interesting yeah it, it didn't go really deep into that but it was sort of like um how hmm. new policies that are coming out negatively impact the entrepreneurs that were that are feeding that parts, whether it's just like they get priced out or there's like new areas where they can't really be or mm-hmm. like the types of food that they had, like it just, they just make it harder. They put up roadblocks. Mm-hmm. Um, Restaurant owners are super anti-food truck. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is so silly. It is. Uh, there's enough people f- that need food and are hungry. Need food, guys. Can it's I, fine. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, Hmm. um, but she talks a lot about food trucks and the entrepreneurialism and how like showing up for the community in this altruistic way um, and how that is often not calculated in the census about food access and, or it's calculated as fast food or unhealthy food, but then you go back into that unhealthy food conversation. What I find really interesting is sort of like looking at the food truck entrepreneurs and these lower income areas and also hucksters from the past which hucksters is like basically a food truck that drives through with fresh fruits fruits and vegetables Mm -hmm. and it used to be really common and then now it's not as common yeah um but these these types of solutions these entrepreneurial types of solutions are great there I think that they're really helpful because yeah you can take the farmer's market through or you can offer culturally balanced cultural food that's a balanced meal outside of the school you know those Mm -hmm. types of entrepreneurialism can you imagine can you imagine like an actual like a like a growth like a like a fresh food truck that would drive around like an ice cream truck where you could get your like organic veggies like what that would be incredible yeah it's not that's not a new idea that's it's just not a new idea right it's just a thing that used people like used to drive their horses through and then you'd buy but they got banned they got banned from racist policies so that larger grocery store chains could come in yeah and take their place yeah yes exactly that so that's one really cool solution i loved but i'm also thinking about it like juxtaposed like this like actual food solution 
with the other actual food solution from the Black Panther program. And like politically it's harder, sure, for the food trucks, but it's viable. It's a viable solution. And I say that because again, like black folks in groups that are educated really scare the white folks in power. So you start to see these like entrepreneurial things that come through and they're like solo, they're not groups. It's just, it's just like the solution, but I, it, and it's still a small, it's still activism. It is still this like small act of rebellion, but it is a solitary act of rebellion, which I think is a little less scary. It goes a little bit more under the radar and makes things a little more possible in this like weird political world that we have to navigate to also try to help solve issues like this. Mm -hmm. So that was a solution. Interesting. They also, in the last, uh, I didn't take a bunch of, I took notes on it, but I didn't put it into my thought space. In my last, in the last one, uh, Good Food in a Racist System, they talked about, I wrote it down. So I don't, I want to say it right. Social enterprise versus social justice. Hmm. Did you read about that know. one? No. Okay. It's a big part. So there, there's another article about Detroit. So must've been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like having a community garden and then like urban agriculture is something they called out specifically in this book, which we've talked about is like, could be helpful, but has to be really intentionally solving this problem. In the first article, in the first article, there's a really cool example of these inde independent gardeners that have, that just rent big plots of land. And then they just leave their gate open. If somebody's hungry, they can come eat something, you know, but it's a community. So that's, that's the social justice way. That's the like small act of solo rebellion kind of way. But then there's this like social enterprise way, which is another way of like, which isn't super racially charged, but it's like capitalist classist charged of like, I'm going to start an urban farm and then everybody can eat from my urban farm if they buy it. So it's like, they can't afford, then you're, then they're priced out of the urban agriculture and they like the urban ag is like we have to make money and she talks about buying a pound of spinach the woman that they interviewed talked about buying a pound of spinach for three dollars like have you ever cooked down yeah. a pound of spinach it's like this much like what the fuck is that who the fuck are you feeding like it's still that is a social enterprise that it like where the urban agriculture is like, we still have to make money. If it's, if it's for the money, it's not social justice. It's social entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that doesn't help. That is just like a neoliberal idea about food and social entrepreneurship and trying to like find a solution to a problem. It's like buy a, a solution. It's still a capitalist plan. Hmm. It doesn't help the community. 
just to have a garden, you have to like buy a bunch of stuff from it that is super expensive, you know? Right. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Huh. That's never been my impression, I suppose, of like when talking about the solution of a community garden, it's never been like, oh yeah, the community garden is run by someone and you still have to buy all of your, your produce from it at, at like Whole Foods prices. Yeah. Um, that's interesting that that exists though. I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. The community garden is the, I, in my, the, I agree with you. The community garden in my mind is the social just, justice part, but like the urban agricultural co-op or like mm-hmm. the, the business that is an urban ag is the social enterprise. If that makes sense, does that distinction make sense? It's such a gray thing to try to distinguish. Yeah, and I suppose without seeing it like sort of in in practice, are they, they're both active farms in urban areas, yeah. one of which just is sort of op- operating more like a nonprofit where it just sort of people do- donate their time. And, and so maybe based on the time you donate, you also kind of can get access to, to, to the crops. Yeah. But then this other one is the social enterprise is just sort of like a store. Like people Basically, can just go to the, <laughs> they just go to the, farm. Yeah. It's like a farm stand kind of thing. They could just purchase things, but it's not actually helping with access at all. No, no, because distance if the price, is an issue yeah. for people living in these places. Yeah. Right. Like you mentioned with Detroit, like, yeah, it doesn't matter if somebody's going two miles, four miles, they're still in their car. It doesn't make a huge difference. Right. Or it's just something they're used to, or it's, you know, it's, it's a normal, normalized situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's actually like, yeah, the, the pricing someone out of the, <laughs> of the potential solution to food access is just as much of a problem as not even having a farm in there in the first place yeah that just seems like it's like a ego you just want to seem like you're doing something virtuous and thusly it is a social enterprise that's yes okay Um, interesting that's not a phrase i've ever heard me either i really liked it and then they start talking about like whole foods because whole foods opened in detroit it was a really big deal and because Whole Foods opened in Detroit and it was one of the first big chains that had been in Detroit for like 10 years or something because Detroit has a bunch of little markets, but it didn't have any like big markets that weren't in the suburbs around Detroit. Mm-hmm. And pe- it was like, this is a gray, food is such a gray area. People were like, fuck Whole Foods, you know, like what are they doing here? But there were a lot of other people that were like, actually, it's not that bad. Like you can go to 365, like now it's been there a while and they offer classes, they give feedback events, they offer cooking stuff and how to do, how to do detox. Like they take an active role in the community as a whole foods market. And that has shifted the way people interact with, with whole foods as a grocery store in Detroit. So they, it wasn't, there wasn't really a commentary whether or not it's like 
positive or negative. It was more about like if it was moral or immoral and sort of the like philosophy behind the morality, like social enterprise versus social justice. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. Whole Foods prices people out pretty quickly as a, you know, it's expensive to, to create food that is really, really like healthy, organic, non-GMO, like, you know, with good meat, like yeah, all that's expensive to produce. It's really expensive to buy, but they're, they put a, they put a stand in and they put a store in Detroit and then they took an active part in the community of teaching the community about healthy food and how to, how to feed their family, how to feed their community and their, and make their bodies more healthy. And so it's more of like a hybrid kind of, of those two concepts of the yeah. social justice and social enterprise. Yeah. Where. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that seems cool. Like the people, they interviewed a few people about it and some were like, I don't shop there because it's too expensive. And other people were like, I don't really shop there, but I have taken their classes. I do like, I do understand healthy food a lot better. I understand how to feed my body, like what to look for when I go, like the education piece is so important here because even that gets back to this like Black Panther program of, of educating feeding, politicizing the community to organize. That's great. I mean, yeah, I, I hope that they're giving jobs to the people that actually work there. Great. Or they live there. They they teach the community members. It's like, it's, it actually seems like a pretty cool program. And I think that like, that's what Whole Foods should be doing. Like absolutely should be doing. Yeah. Whole Foods has so much resources. Like they have yeah, I mean, they're huge now and have been for many years. And right. It's, um, yeah, that's something where they can really, you know, put their money where their mouth is. Is that too much of a pun for talking <laughs> about food? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, it's like, it makes total sense. Yeah. It's like the Apple store teaching seniors how to use cell phones and like, here's how you use your calculator. Like, it's like, yeah, that's a like, you can't just skip over and just say like, why aren't you eating healthy? Why aren't you buying all of these whole right. foods? But it's like, you're completely skipping the whole like education. Why is it important? Piece. Yeah, what? <laughs> like, I don't know how to make this stew. I don't know. Like, right. yeah. And then once you do, you're like, great, I could take that valuable knowledge and go and search for, you know, perhaps the the types of foods or the um, the price bracket of foods that 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 works for me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. This man, I could think about just these chapters of this book for a long time. I mean yeah, people spend their whole lives studying the actual way to make a difference. And just the idea that like, it just, it's also so refreshing to read from the point of view of like, of the black food culture to like see the, the interviews and 
kind of under like have a better understanding of what's actually going on what's actually helpful what's the true history of the black panthers written from the point of view of them it's so nice this is i yeah it's fantastic yeah i, I mean the way this country treated the back black panther party is um really disgusting and awful yeah yeah yeah, yeah. They... yeah. pretty embarrassing you should be embarrassed about that mm -hmm. wow well gosh thank you for sharing the, the those bits from from the first half that was really cool yeah yeah this is an awesome book and um yeah so part two stay tuned everybody yeah we're gonna be talking about it, it's interesting because the second half is is quite different it really kind of goes over um a lot about cultural cultural appropriation with food Ooh. yeah um and also some pretty a pretty big piece of legislation um with the the USDA actually being sued for for some from racist activity yeah. which is interesting I didn't know never heard of this so let's do a let's let's do a deep dive on that one for our BD I want to know more yeah so stay tuned for that if you want to learn more about this further ways in which um capitalist post-colonial racism still hanging on in our everyday world sure is yes but thanks for watching this episode guys see you next time if you liked it please give us a thumbs up and see you next time oh all right i'll talk to you later <laughs>